The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 25, 34 through 40. You can find that on page 807. And when we're done with that one, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, and 24b through 26. And you can find that on page 933. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry? and gave you food, or thirsty, and gave you something to drink? And when was it that you were a stranger, and we welcomed you, or naked, and we gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick, and in prison, and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. The next reading you can find on page 933, it's 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but many. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice with it. The word of the Lord. We are Christ's body. This morning, rather than delving into the deep theological understanding of this truth or do a biblical overview of this radical claim, I hope this morning to give witness to what God's body may look like in all of its fullness. The ways that I've misunderstood it for much of my life and how ultimately the embrace of other members of the body of Christ has fundamentally changed me and ushered me into a new life, the new life that we're promised in the resurrected Christ an innocent man who was labeled a criminal and sentenced to capital punishment, the man who gained our victory over fear, sin, and division. So you know the verses, right? I mean, those are really feel-good verses. We are one body. One part can't say to the other, I don't need you. And then we hop on a horse and we ride off into the sunset with long walks on the beach and nice rainbows in the distance. They're, comfor they're comfortable verses. They're affirming verses. They're nice verses. But as with many verses and every call to follow Christ, these verses, these verses first call us to a death to ourself so that we might have life. These verses are aspirational verses, and they speak of a reality. Movements of God's body are often, and I'll even say most often, precipitated by a journey out of the comforts of our segmented lives, a journey out of the individual, racial, sexual, or ethnic identities that we claim into the broad and diverse 
an inclusive reality of God's embodiment in this world. Being members of Christ's body is easy for us to think about, and it's easy for us to process when we understand it as uh, primarily as people that think like us or look like us or, have share, or share similar interests. When the diversity of God's body calls us out of our comfortable privileges and into a relationship with those whom we share connection in Christ's body. As Christ said in our passage this morning, as you have done to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done unto me. He said this in line with his claim that our foundational commandment is to love God and love neighbor. But who is our neighbor? It's the question that followed that often. Our sermon series is, uh, for these months is uh, titled Biblical Metaphors. But this morning, I think it's interesting because it doesn't say, I don't think that this is a metaphor. It doesn't say you are like Christ's body. It says you are Christ's body. I'm not sure that this is a metaphor. I think it's a reality. This is not some simile. It doesn't say like or as. It says you are. You and I and every person, we are God's body. It's not a choice. This is the stream that we swim in or the stream that we swim against. And so to the extent that we open ourselves to living within it and alongside those who Christ demands that we do, we experience the fullness of this reality and we connect ourselves to one another. And to the extent that we individualize and demarcate our lives, we separate ourselves from this present reality that is in and among us. It's not a cliche to say that we need one another. It's the reality that we swim in. About a year and a half ago, I went to prison for the first time, and not in the way that you think. Um, <laughs> I was led there by the urging of a professor of mine from North Park who was starting a class at Stateville Prison, and there was an article in the Covenant Companion a few months ago that maybe you saw um, called Letters from Stateville, and that was uh, the product of some of the work that we were doing at our work in Stateville. So I was led there by this urging of my professor. She said, I think that this would be something you would appreciate. And I was led by some daunting t statistics of our prison system that jails too many and for too long and many people who are unjustly treated. So it was with that nudging and those urging of the statistics that I went to class um, that would uh, seek to bring students from the outside into prison and students from the inside um, to the two people on the outside so that we could learn alongside one another in equality. So I'll be honest and say that there was with a healthy amount of uh, fear that I walked into Stateville for the first time. It's about 20 minutes down the road on Joliet Road. There are neighbors. So it was a healthy amount of uh, fear that I walked in there. It's a stranger in a strange land, I'm not going to lie. The experience of walking into a prison that's disproportionately inhabited with men of color as a tall white man in skinny jeans is a very scary thing. It's not uncommon as I'm walking through the yard to get called skin tight as I'm walking from one place to the other. I take it lovingly most often. Uh, it's fine. But that experience of immediately being a minority is something that maybe we're not all used to, and it makes you uncomfortable. It makes you immediately aware of the ways that you're different, your otherness, your inability to really offer something. I was daunted by those fears uh, of prisoners afraid of stereotypes. Stateville Prison, which is 20 minutes away, shares the name uh, with uh, Statesville Haunted Prison, a yearly uh, tradition where costumed prisoners covered in blood and scary lurk around corners to scare people for money. The prison system is a scary place, and people profit off of it. It's built on fear. It's built on dehumanization. 
and it's, it's built on this reduction of a person to a number or the sum of their past. We've all probably had that experience, but it's just much more institutionalized in a place like prison. So it was in the face of many of these racial tensions and fears that our class began and sought to create a community that was different. And what followed was a transformational experience that I'm probably not going to be able to lay out exactly as I've uh, experienced it. But I was touched and moved by these stories of transformation, angered by systemic injustice, and moved to tears often, which the way in which these men that I grew to love challenge and explain my understanding of who Christ is and what the gospel is. When my friend David, who was jailed at 19 in 1984, before I was born, he stood up and now 32 years later, stood at the beginning of class and he said, I sing because I am happy. I sing because I am free. His eye is on the sparrow and I know that he watches me. It was difficult to be afraid of prisoners anymore after that. They weren't statistics anymore or stereotypes. They were members of the body of Christ and I was one with them and they were one with me. These interactions and friendships, and I say this without any hyperbole, these interactions saved my faith. It's central to our created desire to know and to be fully known. And it was in prison that I began to understand that in a new way and be fully known as I have been fully known through my incarcerated brothers in God's body and hopefully me to them as well. Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. This too is something that I don't, that I don't think is a metaphor. It's not a metaphor, it's a reality. As we meet with one another in the body of Christ, it's a much larger thing. If we're all given the divine image, then as we interact with one another, so too do we some way interact with God's image. But too often we segment the people that we would like to interact with, and that limits our ability to know Christ fully. It limits our ability to have Christ's body fully realized in this world. I've wondered recently if when Jesus said at the end of our life we come to God and God says, depart, depart from me for you, ne for you never knew me. I never knew you. He wasn't talking directly about our tendency to comfortably surround ourselves with information or people or things that simply affirm our beliefs rather than challenge and expand them. When Jesus says in Matthew 25, for I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly I say to you, as you have done to the least of these you did to me. He was giving us a direct mandate on how to find his presence. You want to find Jesus? Go to the brothers and sisters who are the least of these, and there you'll find him. The embodied reality of Christ is among those on the margins, and I want to tell you, it's alive and it's thriving there. Corinthians says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there would be no division in the body but the members that may, has, may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So in the body of Christ, our common humanity is directly tied to those with we share a place in. As far as a child anywhere is illiterate, so too are we. As far as someone goes hungry, so too are we malnourished. As far as a brother sits wrongfully accused, so too do we sit falsely accused. For just as one body, the body is one and has many members, so it is with Christ. For there is one spirit, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. In modern language, Paul's saying that these racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic classes are not the economy of God's kingdom. In God's body, these divisions can't exist. 
So it stands to reason that anywhere that they do exist is a place where God's body has not yet been fully realized. Any place in our lives, in our churches, or in our world where people are discriminated against because of these external signifiers runs in direct opposition to the embodiment and the flourishing of Christ's body and God's kingdom. So wherever sinful patterns prohibit us from living the life that desires to live in us, or people are treated as opportunities for profit, wherever our work life degrades ourselves or our employees or our coworkers, we fail to live up to the idea that all members are vital. Wherever there is injustice that runs contrary to God's economy, the body of Christ is just waiting to come alive. And the beloved community becomes alive and enlivens us and enlivens us for the work ahead. And I speak from experience seeing that God can work through others and it's powerful work. If we had time, there's so many people in our church that have experiences of, I'm sure, going to places that they never expected to find Jesus. And then when they sat across the table from someone so different, found Jesus in a significant and new way. When we take those first fearful steps, we find God. We need one another. Our common, our common faith depends on our stepping out of the boat onto the waves of unsure footing and vulnerable, uncomfortable relationships so that we might fully experience the fullness of God's life. There's an incarnation in a shared humanity that crosses and expands our borders. But it begins with a step of faith, out of the comfort of the boat. You know that story where Peter is in the boat and the waves are against him and Jesus comes walking on the water and he calls them out. And Peter's the first one because Peter's, you know, he just kind of jumps into stuff without thinking about it. And so Peter steps out of the boat and he begins walking on the water. Jesus says, come to me, and he starts walking on the water. And he's excited, right? It feels good. I mean, it, you can imagine this momentous moment, this mountaintop experience. It all is well, and you're doing something amazing, and it feels good. As I've shared, my brothers in Stateville have embraced me and broken down these fearful stereotypes that things like Statesville prison, haunted prison, or political posturing or economic and social segregation have ingrained in my mind. I've walked into Stateville for the last year and a half to visit with my friends in love and be loved by them. And far from being stifled or suppressed, my mind and my heart have grown a hundred times. They flourished inside of the walls of prison. The embodied reality of what a life of faith can and might look like that I see in friends like Corzell or Senecu or Ryan or David or Marcos or many others assures me that the good news is actually good. That though our stories may differ widely, that though our gifts may be entirely different, that though our past sins may be well documented and they're held over our heads, that though our system might be broken and dehumanizes each of us in different ways and reduces us to numbers or external signifiers, the gospel still grows wherever the soil is rich. I believe all of this deeply, but I've learned it behind 40-foot walls of concrete and bars, and it's not the place that you expect to learn those types of lessons. I had to get out of the boat, much like Peter's story, to walk on the waves to realize that the water out there was nice. Until about a month ago, I went back to prison, and my faith was shaken, much like that story. You maybe heard it before, but Peter's walking on the waves, and he's walking on the waves, and things are good, and then he sees the waves around him, and all of a sudden it gets freaky. He's doing something good, but it shakes his faith, and he begins to sink. It was a discouraging and a degrading, a degrading day. The joking comments about the way that I was dressed, they seemed just a little bit more abrasive. 
and the comments from the guards were demeaning and degrading. I felt other once again. I felt distinctly aware of who I was, rejected in who I was. I was angry and I was frustrated. I felt rejected by a community that I had grown to love so much. I went home discouraged, and the, as is common, I think, for many of us, the news started getting to me. I read a story that week of a man who was released from prison, and then while he was out, he committed a crime. He raped a woman in Chicago. And the doubt of that day settled in my mind, and I began to revert back into those fearful places that I had been and tried to move away from. And I found myself asking, maybe they don't deserve a second chance. Fear and doubt settled, settled in. I still knew the things that I knew, right? Like, we don't forget those experiences, but the experience of the opposite made me want to lump everybody into one category and say, maybe they don't deserve it. Because that's what fear and sin does to us, if I'm honest. It lulls us into this contentment and traps us in these ever-enclosing circles of comfort and status quo and anxiety and isolation and selfishness. So we control our surroundings and we surround ourselves with that which keeps us safe and stay away from those valleys of the shadow of death so that we can be on the mountaintop in the nice sunny air. But oftentimes when we've protected ourselves in that way, we remember that our brothers and sisters are still down in the valley of shadow of death and we've left them there. And suddenly I could feel myself sinking back into that place, those fears, those anxieties, finding myself thinking the worst of the, my friends. Those feelings lingered for a couple weeks until last week, Ann Wiesbrock from our church, she plays piano in the band. She told me that she was going to Stateville to attend the class as part of her work. So I invited myself along with some reservation. I was nervous because of that experience of just feeling other. It wasn't the initial fear of getting out of the boat. It was I'd been walking on the water, and all of a sudden the waves were around me, and it became it became scary again. The jeers would be amplified and my humanity would be reduced to how I was different rather than how we were the same. I'd be unwelcome. And then that day I sat in class and my friend Corzell, um, he stood up and at the beginning of class what they do is they share something that they're, they're going through and Corzell stood and he was moved to tears for the health of his son who he's away from and can't be near in critical condition. He couldn't care for him and he couldn't share any of these emotions in any other place in the prison because you have to save face there. But in the beloved community of that class, he was able to be honest about who he was. He was able to be honest about his weakness, be vulnerable in the things that he was experiencing. And I was moved by that vulnerability and so I shared um, my, my vulnerability coming into that place that day how that morning I was afraid of the way that I was going to be viewed and how I hated prison because it drew out those differences between free and in prison, between black and white, between these different divisions. How I felt judged and excluded during my visit. And then, after I shared that, William was sitting across the room. William's in his 60s. And William sat on death row for several years before Illinois passed a moratorium on the death penalty. William caught my eye and he smiled at me. And then we got into a discussion of this book that they've been reading called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And they read the and one of the people, one of the guys in class read these book, read these words. 
In a Christian community, everything depends upon whether each individual is an indispensable link in the chain. Only when even the smallest link is securely interlocked is the chain unbreakable. Every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of fellowship. So we read and we discussed, and at the end of class, William, a dead man walking, a man who our laws sentenced to be murdered for murder, embraced me and looked me in the face and said, I love you, and God's image is in you. And he embraced me and told me that I was created in the beautiful image of a God who loves me. And in that moment, William answered a question that I didn't even know I'd been asking. That morning, he answered the question I had been asking myself subconsciously, and it was, do I matter? Am I enough? He answered that question with an affirmative yes. We were not created for division or fear or guilt or isolation. We were made for unity and love and hope and freedom. It's a question that we often ask ourselves, do I matter? And am I enough? Whether we admit it or believe it. And I think the problem isn't that we aren't doing enough or that we aren't enough. It's that often we settle for lesser versions of what God's body is supposed to be. We settle for lesser versions than the connected body that we were supposed to be a part of. Where love of neighbor comes before love of oneself. A place where the weak are lifted up and cared for. This vision of Christ's body is alive and well. It's accessible to you and it's accessible to me. It works. It doesn't only exist 20 minutes down the road at Stateville. It casts out fear. Where once stereotypes and divisions were rampant, we are faced with brothers and sisters who are deeply loved and who can deeply love us. It fills those connected to it with an abundant life that Jesus died and was resurrected to give us. So, I was moved to go to prison because of statistics and because of happenstance, but I was changed by a beloved community of God's body. We have to get past this fatigue that I think is very rampant in our culture these days of statistics and misinformation and realize that every, every issue at its core is just a human issue, an issue answering the question of whether or not we need one another, and we do. We do need one another. The joyful celebration and laughter and the deep life that we feel in Christ, the honest, tearful moments, the mournful embrace of our weakest moments, all of those are part of what it means to be a part of God's body. So we might be restored once again to that which God died so that we might be resurrected to. This is our kingdom work, to remember and to restore one another to a beloved community to be humble enough to hand our humanity to someone else and trust that they're going to care for it and hand it back to us the same way that we gave it to them. Are we trustworthy to that task, I wonder? Can we hand someone our humanity and let them do the same? To fight through the fa fears of failure and status quos and divisions and sinful manipulations so that we might be challenged by an astounding diversity and beauty of God's good creation and God's beautiful body. If you're here this morning and you're asking that central question, like I was last Monday, do I matter? Am I enough? My answer is an overflowing and abundant yes. You matter. Yes, you're enough. I see you as God sees you.
people ask me, uh, sometimes uh, they come up to me and they've heard about some of the stuff that I've been doing at Stateville, and they say, hey, so how is your pr prison ministry going? And that's a really nice question, but it's also fundamentally flawed. Prison ministry, at least to me, implies that I go there to bring something significant to prison, that I go to preach the gospel or the good news, but the opposite is true. Because the body of Christ is so diverse and surprising and enlightening, I go to prison not to bring the gospel. I go to prison to find it. We are God's body, brothers and sisters. It's not a metaphor. It's the reality that we live in. It's the stream that we swim in. For the time that Christ is away, we are tasked with building his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. As Kendrick Lamar puts it, what happens on earth stays on earth. The ways that we build for the legacy of God's body in this world will last far into the future if we remember and restore one another and answer the question, what will we do with the gift that we've been given? Don't hold our humanity so tightly that we lose it in the process. We have to lay it down for a greater and grander vision of an eternally diverse and inclusive and life-giving body in which we may truly live and move and have our being. May it be so. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus and Holy Spirit, you are the three-in-one God who seeks to come into our world of dualistic thinking of in or out, black and white, and seek to create a third-way kingdom, a kingdom to whom our allegiance is foundationally founded, and a kingdom to which we belong to one another in your glorious body. So bind us together, Lord. Assure us that your work is good, that your good news is in and around us, and empower us to find it wherever we go. In your name.